Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now. Thank you so much called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well. Megan O'Rourke is the author of The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. She's also the author of The Long Goodbye and the poetry collections Sun and Days, Once and Half-Life. The recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and other awards, she is the editor of the Yale Review. Her writing appears in The Atlantic Monthly, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and more. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the Invisible Kingdom and your work and your life and everything else. I am so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Okay. So I'm sure most people listening are familiar with your best-selling book already, but just in case, would you mind describing what it's about and how you decided to share all of this and do all the work on it and just all the good stuff? 
Yeah. So this book has been, I think, almost a decade in the writing. I, I, it's called The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, and it weaves my own story of getting mysteriously sick over really quite a long time, more than a decade, first subtly and then quite ill with a strand, you know, a kind of through line of reportage about how did we end up here where so many people who have these kinds of illnesses that I'm talking about, like autoimmune disease, fibromyalgia, um, myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome or ongoing effects of Lyme disease, et cetera, now long COVID. Why is it in this hyperdiagnostic age that we live in that it's so hard for patients like us to get diagnosis and treatment and to be heard and seen and witnessed. So that's the book. It's sort of this personal story and then this reported story about what in the history of medicine brought us to this moment where as we live through what I call a silent epidemic of chronic illnesses of these sorts, nonetheless, so many people and many of them women are having just extraordinary trouble getting diagnosed and treated and recognized. And what I show in the book is that that adds to their suffering. It added to my suffering and it added to the suffering of many of the women I um, interviewed for the book and so forth. So yeah. what, what is the answer? What is causing the chronic pain? Why is there this uptick of it? And why is it so hard to diagnose? And then like, wh- what's your, what was your main takeaway? Yeah. So I think there's three fundamental problems. I hope it's just three. I think there's three. Um, <laughs> let's, start with, let's start with this. Great. Let's start with the three big ones. So one is that modern medicine, as we all know intuitively, but when you really dig in, it's really there, is built on measurement, the idea that we can measure everything that's wrong with the human body, and replicability, which is to say the idea that like what happens you know, when a bone breaks in a certain way in me, it will break a certain way in you. When influenza infects me, it will infect you in a similar way, right? This is the the building block of what's called the germ theory, which comes along in the 19th century and turns medicine from this healing-oriented art which was really practiced both by female lay, you know, people, um, lay healers and sort of an emerging class of doctors who, you know, we have all heard about bloodletting and these wild um, therapies. They would give people often very dramatic therapies because they didn't really know how to help. (laughs) So the germ theory comes along and measurement comes along, microscopes and x-rays and eventually the MRI. And it gives medicine these incredible tools that have really led us to live longer and healthier lives. But it's all based on this idea, as this one researcher put it, Robert Koch, that basically a pathogen should behave roughly the same way in everyone. So what we're finding is that these diseases that I'm talking about are often, the illness itself is shaped by your immune system. And the immune system is a highly particular and highly individual phenomenon, right? It's sort of your own personal history of your record of encounters with pathogens and trauma and so forth and pollution and childbirth, whatever it might be. So that measurement and replicability model doesn't work so well for autoimmune diseases because you and I could have the same autoimmune disease and it could manifest in really different ways. And then autoimmune disease itself is this huge category. So I think we've seen this all dramatically laid out before us in the pandemic where we see that everyone responds to COVID a little bit differently. And some people are ending up sick for months, even after a mild infection. So that's just the first problem. 
(laughs) The second problem (laughs) is easier to say, and that's just that we women have been treated actually poorly by medicine for a long time. Women's testimony is still often dismissed in medical doctor's offices, there's this whole legacy of hysteria, this tendency to see physical symptoms as signs of a, you know, a secret psychiatric problem that can't speak, right? It can't speak itself. And so it speaks in the body. Um, And also making that even more complicated, we didn't do much research on women's health until pretty recently. So even through the 1990s, a lot of medical experiments were conducted just on biologically male animals. And it turns out that women metabolize and process medications really differently. And Disease affects us, you know, heart disease is different in us than it is in men. It's so crazy that they wouldn't think to do that. Right, you're like, it's science. The science is just looking at, you know, and so I'm a big believer in science, but the point I make is like science is incomplete. It's a process, it's done by humans. So we need that science to start, you know, getting more of us. But the third problem is that these... Is, is the is that very individuality of these diseases so that there's so many possible factors for how we can get disease. And I think these diseases often come about as a response to what one researcher I talked to called successive hits. So it's harder to see the origin of them, right? Like maybe you get the flu and something starts to go wrong and then your mother dies and then that stress kind of further changes your immune system. So it's really hard to nail down the, the beginning. So that makes us really uncomfortable. We start to psychologize diseases, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that COVID has done though is shown a really clear starting point for these diseases, which is we know that long COVID is connected to COVID, (laughs) right? And that's helped, I think, all see that there's a real problem and that that might be true for flu. There might be long flu. There might be long Epstein-Barr virus. Yeah, that was a very long answer, but we got there. That's okay. That's okay. So in addition to all this analysis and science and medicine and and all of the things you've uncovered, you were so generous in sharing your own experience, which, you know, as sort of a memoir, I hate to say junkie or addict is the negative connotations. Yeah. Lover, memoir lover. You know, I always find myself in every report reported type story sort of, you know, sucking out like a magnet, all the personal bits and pieces. So would you mind sharing with listeners a little more about your own story, particularly how it's like affected your relationships and all of the other stuff? Yeah. So I had a story that turns out to be sadly common, you know, which is to say that I began getting sick in my early 20s. I think like right after I graduated from college, we spent a week at the Connecticut shore. A few weeks after that, I started getting, you know, I had like a little summer flu. And then I started having all these strange neurological problems. I was working as an assistant, editorial assistant at the New Yorker. I'd gotten this job. I was so excited. I was trying to start my life as an adult, which was both terrifying and just thrilling. And like on day three, I was walking to work and I started getting these strange electric shocks all over my body. It felt like someone was taking very fine needles and actually sticking them in my skin, kind of like a scene out of the crucible or something. Right. And it was so severe. I had to stop and rub my arms and legs. And, you know, at that point really started on a quest to find answers, went to doctors, but my doctors were like, we can't really find anything wrong with you. You had one test that looked like lupus, but then we repeated it. It didn't look like lupus anymore. So I went through this decade of really internalizing the idea that perhaps it was stress that was causing my symptoms, right? My my doctors would say things like, you've got a high-powered job, maybe you're anxious. It was a little anxious, right? 
you know, this is probably, you're just pushing yourself too hard, try to sleep more, reasonable advice, but didn't get to the bottom of the problem. So I kind of coped for a long time. And this is the part that I think many people can relate to where you slowly realize that not everyone else is just exhausted at the end of the day. Right. Or, right. You know, like really? I was, we are now, but you know, it's, it's like, I should have been able to get through the day without total exhausted. Anyway. And then my mom died of cancer, which is something I wrote about in the long goodbye. And I was really close to her. I think I was 32 when she died and I was so devastated and I'd been taking care of her. So I was quite run down. I'm sorry. I know, right? And I got a virus and the day after she died, ended up in urgent care and like went downhill, went off a cliff, which is really resonant and complicated to think about, right? That it's like, clearly there's something was going on, but also this huge emotional stressor, definitely that was a triggering point for me. And I never really got back and it got so severe that I ended up pretty much bedridden at one point, sort of faking it, right? Like I, I, I'm a very, I don't know, I'm just a kind of optimistic, energetic person. And so I just couldn't really admit it to my friends and family. I mean, my family knew, my friends knew a little bit. I was still working one day a week and I would go out and I would pretend I was okay. And then I would like come back and collapse. And at that point, really started this quest in earnest and started getting answers that I had an autoimmune disease, then that I had some neurological issues, something called POTS, which a lot of people who get COVID have, where you get quite dizzy. And then finally, Lyme disease that had gone undiagnosed for years, which I was, the book recounts that I was very suspicious of that diagnosis and really unpacks the the complexity of getting a tick-borne diagnosis. But in my case, it seemed to really be an answer for the roller coaster I'd been on. And, you know, a big part of that roller coaster was the alienation and loneliness of, you know, both trying to communicate this to my partner or my husband who really believed me, but couldn't understand. Right. So there was a loneliness and a gulf there and a frustration. Right. And then just feeling as someone in her thirties, like my friends were going out, they were having children, they were building families. And I felt frozen in time. It was quite heartbreaking. I really wanted a family and we were trying to have a family. And I remember thinking, oh my God, if I get pregnant, I might die. Right. You know, I mean, I just, and it was like this unbidden thought because I was repressing so much. Anyway, so this quest though, and finally the Lyme disease diagnosis meant that I really got the help I needed and got you know, largely better and was able to have two beautiful children who definitely exhaust me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's sort of the, the story. But what I wanted in this book was to be really careful about showing both the hopefulness that you really can recover to some degree from some of these conditions, but also not in an era when a lot of people still are sick for life, and I'm really trying to write about the chronic part of chronic illness, not reduce the story to a tidy, like, and then I got better and everything was great. Like, I still live with these conditions. It's still challenging. And so I I try to write about, a lot of the book really is about the stories we tell ourselves about, about illness too. Wow. Well, I feel like your story has obviously just totally hit a nerve, right? There's so many people out there who have the same thing. I mean, I can't even tell you how many books like I get pitched either for this podcast or for Zippy Books or whatever about people living with chronic pain of some way. And I'm very interested. You know, I read them and, you know, but there's something just, 
I don't know what, how do you attribute this? Like, what is this about? Like, why, why is now like, is it just that we're finally talking about it so much more or that it's just been repressed for so long or the validation is finally coming? Like, what is it? Yeah. I think that we are both starting to see scientifically and culturally the reality of these diseases, right? That, that COVID has put that vividly before our eyes, that we see that healthcare workers, marathoners, you know, a whole range of people who are in the prime of their lives in their thirties are getting a mild case and then ending up really sick. And I think it's hard for us to ignore that. So I think in a weird way, my book came out at a lucky moment, right? I think also part of what I'm trying to do in the book is the reason we write, the reason we read is to understand, right? To have frameworks, to be able to say, here's this murky thing. Oh, and here's a word for it. Here's a framework. Mm-hmm. So I think the work I was really trying to do in my book, which I wasn't finding in some of the other books I read that I loved and meant a lot to me, was to really create this framework where you could follow my story as someone who might be sick herself or as a caretaker, a father, mm-hmm. a husband, a cousin. And it would offer a kind of explanation and also on a literary level, be like a detective story so that it, it's, and and like a novel, it's showing you the complexity of life with illness to be sick. Isn't just all doom and gloom. It's like, you're still living your life. You still have hopes and ambitions and you laugh and you cry and you, so I, I think right now we're, we are all hungry for that reminder because we've all in a way been living the life of a chronically ill person, right? In the pandemic, we've all been quarantined and worrying and wondering. And so I think there's some of, of that, that there's this huge problem. We've all been through a national trauma and we're kind of hopefully ready to look at the science and look at the reality of these stories and start coming toward a future where maybe we have more tools to deal with them. Yeah, that. well, it's very hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> Some days I'm more pessimistic, but today I'm like, do it. <laughs> All right, good. I'll, I'm going to get on your train. I'll like, you know, put my hands on your shoulders in the locomotion or whatever and follow along. I'll, I like that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Can we talk about your your life as a writer too? And also just like where where did you grow up? Like what is your overall story? How did we how did yeah. you get here and everything? Yeah. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. My parents came to New York from New Jersey, suburban New Jersey. They were both from large Irish Irish Catholic families. And my mom, I think, was the first daughter in her family to go to college. She went to Barnard. And she was like a lifelong reader, learner. She got an MA when we were in high school in science. She just loved to learn. Wow, that's cool. She loved stories. She was not herself a writer, but she, when I was very young, gave me a journal and said, you should write down the interesting things that you see and hear. And her example was something like, like the girl with a mohawk and purple hair on the corner because it was the 80s, right? <laughs> I, by the way, dressed up as a girl with a mohawk and purple hair for Halloween in the 80s. Yes. Right. There you go. So, you know, right. I think cool tights and, yeah. right. Right. It's funny. I was just showing my kids pictures of mohawks. <laughs> and I remember being terrified of mohawks at that age and they were that it was so cool and how they want them. And anyway, so yeah, I, I went to a school called St. Anne's. My parents were teachers and I was really encouraged in writing from a young age. Like I think I loved writing. I loved reading. I was shy. So I read all the time and kind of really had a conversion moment when I was about 13 years old, where I wrote a story and I was like, this is what I want to do my whole life. Had no idea that that was actually possible by the way, but like knew that I had that, that feeling of like somehow this act of expressing something through a literary lens, through a story in this case, was what I wanted to do. So when I went to college, I took a bunch of writing classes and just kept writing sort of obsessively and ended up working in magazines. I worked at The New Yorker as an an assistant and then an editor for a long time as a fiction editor and nonfiction editor. And I always tell people that that was like going to graduate school because just the incredible writers and editors who were there and just the I mean, I felt like such an imposter. <laughs> I felt like <laughs> you're letting me edit a George Saunders story. You're letting me edit, you know, you only I just, but I learned so much. And the great thing about a magazine is you have the support of others and you learn from others and you learn to collaborate. And I think that was a really key stage for me as a writer, even though I wasn't writing a lot, because I realized that writing didn't just have to be lonely and perfect, right? I realized that a lot of these writers were handing in beautiful stories, but Parts of them didn't totally work or they were, the jokes were too, you know, took too long to tell or whatever, you know? And so it was this great education where it both taught me a lot about the craft of sentence writing and also kind of got me out of any preciousness or fears I think I had about, you know, and trust me, there's still plenty of fears, but like <laughs> it helped me see that writing could be this process. It didn't have to be perfect on the first try is what I'm saying. So yeah, I, I wrote poems during that time and then published my first book of poems and then went to Slate magazine for a while where I created a culture section in 2002, a very different era in the magazine. It was quite curated and smaller. We didn't publish as much and really fun and a wonderful education in how different mediums can lead to different kinds of writing, right? So that on the internet, you needed a kind of immediacy. You needed to speak through the screen to the, to the, to the reader in a way that in the book, you could be quieter and take your time, right? But that we read as different people in different spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And from there, just sort of pivoted to writing. And I've been writing ever since my, my mom died. And I think that was the moment where I 
urgent. I've been writing about grief for Slate and I just urgently felt that it was a book. And, and since that moment, I've, I've really been mostly writing. I, I've come to Yale in the past couple of years, which is where I went to college, um, to edit the Yale Review, which is a wonderful literary magazine that's been here for 200 years. And so I do that part-time and I, I write part-time and it's sort of the best of both worlds, right? Where I get to the hard thing about writing is it's all about you, right? It's all in your head. It's all like, am I making this work? If you have a bad day, it's that's all you have to show for it, right? And what I've always loved about editing in magazines is that you can take the tools that you love as a writer, which are attention to sentence, caring about character, reading, and you can be a good reader for someone else, right? And you can help their work. And yeah, so it's, it's you know, instead of podcasting, that's what I, <laughs> that's my contribution. <laughs> I went to Yale too, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah. But I love it. Yeah. We were there at the same time. I think I'm probably older than you, but anyway, very cool. Yeah. Amazing. So what are you investigating now? Like what is your, what is your obsession? Right now I'm in the really noodly fun exploratory part where I probably shouldn't even say anything, but I'm such a transparent person. I just, you know, I talk about myself in my books, but I'm really interested in middle age right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really interested in I don't know what it's like to be in this part of it. I think it's partly the pandemic too, but sort of feeling in time, you know, you're not at the beginning anymore. You're not at the end though. You've got quite a lot hopefully before you, but parts of your life are receding, right? And you have to bring them back. And I think part of it's about being a mom and figuring out what to translate to my children about my past. And part of it's that moment in time where you get a long view, where you realize these things that are so intimately known to you will fade away. And and how do you think about that? And the the poet in me wants to reconstruct them all and hold on to them. And so I'm exploring all of that. And I think a little bit how the pandemic froze us in time and now is releasing us back. But Oh my gosh. I can't wait to read that. I mean, that's exactly where my head is at these days. I mean, I literally like as every little thing changes, I'm 45. And so I I just feel like this is the time where things have changed the most since I was like a kid. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, okay. So now I can't see. And I swear to God, I'm losing hearing in my right ear, but I'm not going to address it. And like, what is this wrinkle on my neck? And like, oh, okay. Like, there's nothing really I'm going to be able to do. I'm just going to have to sit here and watch as like I deteriorate slowly. Exactly, exactly. Like how do we make peace with that, right? Right? I'm Both like physically and sort of spiritually and existentially. Yeah, yes. totally. It's it's totally. a tough pill to swallow, I'm not going to lie. But I'm also like why is everybody not talking about this all the time? Like this is wild. This is like insanely wild <laughs> and like I didn't feel like I got like the manual when I turned 40, maybe even more like 44. I, I, for me, it's like this year has been. Totally. I'm, I just turned 46. So we're, oh, we're okay. right in the same period of time. And yeah, it's like, right. You kind of are in like, even the first few years of your forties, it's like the late thirties. And then you yeah. suddenly like things start to change and right. There's no manual and there's not a lot of discussion of it. So I'm always yeah. interested in my work in the places where we're all going through something, grief, illness, aging and we're not really talking about it. Right. Cause I, I think I want my books to be kind of that best friend. Who's going to just tell you everything. Yeah. Well, right. yeah. if you need a subject, not that, not that there is a lack of women in their mid forties or fifties or whatever, but yes, I am. I don't know. It's, I'm glad you're doing that because I, yeah, I find myself 
drawn to like, oh, a memoir in midlife? Yes. What, what, tell me? Cause like I am in my midlife and like. <laughs> you have these memoirs of like being much older and often these memoirs written by young people. Yes. Not that much about midlife, right? Cause right. It's mid story. How do you tell the story mid story? Well, I don't know. We're going to, I'm going to try. Plus yeah. like, I feel like midlife was so, I feel like we, it needs a rebrand. Do you know Like, right. like I don't like middle age like that, because it used to be so much older. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so what do we call it? It's Let's give like, it a new name. Maybe you can do that from your platform. Like, a, you know. Yeah. It's like middle of the stream, but I need something. We need something evocative. All right. I'm going to work on that. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, because in some ways it's really great. Like in some ways, like you come into your own and it's like, uh, totally. you know, I love this age. You know, I really do. It's just middle is such a. Yeah. Uh, you you work on that. I'll work on it too. <laughs> I would love to hear more, but I think that's right. And it's, I was at uh, the Penn World Voices Festival and there was a big party and I was like, oh, right, I'm at the age where I can go to the party if I want to and not go to the party if I want to, right? Where, where when you're young, you feel like you have to go to the party or, yeah, um, right? But there's this way in which you can really make decisions for yourself and they feel much more your own. And yet there's the challenge of like, what does this all mean? Where am I? Where am I on time? Yeah. So, or I can leave the party at nine forty-five because I can't stay awake past ten o'clock anymore. Ultimate, exactly. So I went and I stayed for the exact amount of time I wanted to stay, and then I left. <laughs> 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 <It was> deliberating. <laughs> was a benefit I went to that ended like right at nine, and I was like, "This is genius. Why doesn't everybody do this?" You know, <laughs> like six to eight p.m. Even. Yeah, great. <laughs> that was my dream. I know. I would so much rather have like a breakfast party, but you know, like my, my, I, I, I like start high and like the rest of the day, I just like lose my, anyway, that's just, uh, that's not mid midlife. I guess that's just me maybe exacerbated by that. <laughs> Children too, right. I think as, as working parents, right. You sort of feel at the end of the day, you're like, this is my time. <laughs> you're going to bed. Now it's my time. With the success of your books and everything, has there been anything that's come of it? in terms of people that you've met or something you were like just totally unexpected that, that has come even from this latest book, like people, stories you weren't expecting, or is, has there just been like a trend that you didn't see coming after this has come out? Yeah. Well, I have to say, I think on the most basic level, this book was really hard to write. And one reason it was hard to write is it's hard to tell the story of your own illness. It's a little bit like telling people your dreams, mm-hmm. right? Um, <laughs> kind of had to be there, right? So so, so from a craft perspective, I was really worried that, and my illness was largely invisible. It was kind of full of ups and downs. It wasn't dramatic in a certain way. So I think there was this fundamental question that I had was like, would anyone connect to this book? Would it, and was it actually going to be evocative of other people's stories? So I do think the biggest kind of, not necessarily surprise, but like reality that I was not sure about was that people are connecting to this book. They feel seen and heard in a way. That's what I hear a lot, which is really touching that, you know, they felt more seen and heard by the book than, than they had by anything they'd read, which was my, my greatest hope for it. And then it's a really good question. I think, I think I am shocked by how many people are suffering, mm-hmm. you know, and how hard it is for us to tell our stories. I think that's not a fun fact, but it has been galvanizing. And I do feel that people 
around people who are sick or suffer from pain are starting to listen with new ears. And we are on the verge of a national shift of some kind. Mm -hmm. More locally, there've just been some writers I met. The writer Chloe Cooper-Jones was a beautiful book out called Easy yes. Beauty. Like, we've been on sort of parallel tour. Yes, and I have her party. coming up. <laughs> She's awesome. She's so wonderful. And I just feel like I have a new friend, right? So that's been one of the great gifts of, of tour and um, just meeting and hearing from readers. I love getting emails from readers. Yeah. yeah. I want to have perhaps a daytime party since we've already established too late at night is not good, but, and I want like everybody just to wear shirts and have all of their like have all these boxes, like chronic pain, like check, you know, grieving a loved one, check, like just all these ways. Cause when you look at people on the street, you just have no idea. And I just feel like everyone would be such a better person and we would all be so much kinder to each other. Absolutely. If all that stuff was on the outside versus hidden on the inside. Uh, I remember so vividly when I wrote The Long Goodbye, I think I wrote about this in The Long Goodbye, which was about my mother's death. And it was written kind of in real time because I had this feeling that I was so inconsolable, you know, and very few of my friends, I was 32, few of my friends had lost somebody and they didn't know what to say. And I felt like, again, something was wrong with me, right? Like how this grief is so big. I mean, it felt like I, I had this naive idea that every day the grief would be like half as much as the day before. And it would just kind of go from big to small and be done, you know? Anyway, but I remember one day, so I wrote the book in real time to show that grief was much messier, et cetera. So one day, a couple of weeks after my mom died, I just remember getting on the subway and someone like shoved me and another person was rude, you know, blah, 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 what's wrong with you? And I just felt like bursting into tears. And I remember just, wishing exactly what you said. We just have like a way of showing when we're vulnerable so that, you know, and ever since then I've felt very different in public. Like when someone's really short or strange to me, I just think maybe they're, maybe they just lost somebody. Maybe they're sick. Right. And it's, but it's really hard. Right. Yeah. Well, I love like, it. Yeah. It's like it used to be in the olden days and people would like right. literally enshroud themselves in right. black and, right. and right. Would, like, treat them with respect and you know, as opposed to like, maybe I'll wear a black t-shirt and jump back on the subway or something. But anyway, I'm sorry, we've gone a little late, but it's been really great talking to you. And I really would love to meet you in person. Yeah. And I want to send you my book. I feel like we have a lot <laughs> in common. And I think I have your assistant's email. So why don't I give her my, or she can give you my email. Oh, um, good. Okay. I'll, 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 okay. Perfect. I'll send me your book. And when I'm, and let's, yeah, let's definitely get together. I'm sure we actually know a bunch of people from Yale and comment too. I bet. I didn't realize we were there at the same time. So yeah. 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 I was probably a year or two in front of you, but yeah, yes. I was 98. So yes, 97. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, it was so great to connect. And connect. thanks right. for having me, Zimmy. Okay. Course, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.